This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Brett Goldstein stepping down as director of the Defense Digital Service. He's been director of DDS since Chris Lynch left in 2019. FedScoop reports the deputy director, Katie Olson, will become acting director. The Department of Health and Human Services has an opening for a chief information officer. Perrin Ashmore says he'll retire from the department at the end of this month. NextGov reports HHS CISO Janet Vogel will become acting CIO. Mike Horton's the new chief data officer at the Homeland Security Department. He'll replace acting CDO Carlene Aletto. NextGov reports Horton's been at DHS for more than 10 years. The Internal Revenue Service would get an $80 billion boost in President Biden's new spending bill. Two former IRS commissioners told you on Government Matters on Sunday that budget boost should be here to stay. John Koskinen's former commissioner of the IRS and former deputy director for management at OMB. He is writing in the Washington Post with former commissioners Lawrence Gibbs, Fred Goldberg, Margaret Richardson, and Charles Rosati. John, welcome. It's good to see you again. Uh, what did you want to convey to the general population, to members of Congress, that caused you to want to sign on to this op-ed with your former colleagues? Well, what I was really trying to convey is the message I had uh, conveyed for the four years I was commissioner, and that was that it's uh, a great workforce at the IRS dedicated to taxpayer service uh, and uh, the fair implementation and execution of the Tax Act. And if you keep underfunding it, uh, things won't go well, and it won't be the fault of the employees. And when you underfund an agency for over 10 years, sooner or later, you should expect that things aren't going to work very well. So I wanted to make clear uh, in that op-ed, <clears throat> that there are significant challenges uh, awaiting the IRS uh, with all of the new work that they've been asked to uh, engage in, and that you've got to appropriately fund them and staff them if you want it to be an effective agency. You were the only one of these five commissioners, John, that I had spoken to before this past Sunday's Government Matters program. And what struck me about this op-ed was, having not had direct interactions with either of the other four former commissioners, a lot of the themes that are in this piece, as I read the paper, I thought, yeah, he's told me that before. Yeah, he's told me that before. Yeah, he's told me that before. There's not a lot new here, is there? This is what commissioners of the IRS have been asking for for a long time. Is that a fair read on my part? Uh, it certainly is. Uh, led by the Republicans in Congress starting in 2010, uh, the agency for five or six years was not only underfunded going forward, it was had its budget cut. And the net result was uh, we lost about 20,000 employees while I was the commissioner for four years. And I kept trying to get the Congress and the public to understand that at some point you don't do more with less, you do less with less. And while a couple of congressmen growled at me for making that comment, it did seem to be important then and more important now with all the additional responsibilities of the IRS for people to understand uh, you've got to fund the agency appropriately, staff it up with the right number of employees if you want it to run effectively. You and your colleagues write in this piece that changing the, the problems at the IRS happen three ways, information, resources, and technology. 
I'll put you back in the commissioner's chair for just a moment. This uh, $8 billion a year, as it works out, on average, that the president's proposing, if that comes to you, where do you stack it first, John, among those three priorities? Well, I think you probably don't choose among them. You actually go across the board. Uh, you need to uh, staff up appropriately. Uh, you need to fix technology. There are <clears throat> amazing things can be done if you have a modern uh, technological system. Uh, the IRS is still running software from the 60s. Uh, so you need an effective uh, IT system. You know, while I was there, uh, we worked on providing taxpayers online experiences with the IRS that mirror uh, the experiences they have with their financial institutions and their banks. If you want to, you ought to be able to communicate with the IRS uh, totally online. Uh, you ought to be able to, as you can now, find out the status of your refunds. You ought to be able to file electronically, but you also ought to be able to solve problems with the IRS online, and that requires technology. Uh, as you know, talking to uh, <coughs> Charles and Fred, uh, they've done a detailed analysis showing that if you increase uh, third-party reporting from banks for wealthy individuals and companies about cash flow uh, in and out of their accounts, uh, that additional third-party information can generate um, hundreds of billions of dollars of revenues, not new taxes. These are taxes that should have been paid along the way. That also requires information technology, uh, but it also the information uh, as uh, we've tried to get everybody to understand, uh, when the IRS has third-party information, compliance rates are above 90%. Without third-party information, uh, much like uh, information about what's going through your bank account, uh, the <clears throat> compliance rate drops into the 50% range. So I think it's fair to say that if you increase the third-party reporting without anything else, you'll increase significantly the amount of compliance by taxpayers who presently now either aren't filing or are cutting corners or are taking positions they know to be wrong. Do you worry that this cash influx and the potential changes will cause an increase in the sentiment that you experienced a lot as the commissioner, which is the IRS is not for us, they're against us, and they're coming to get into my business? How do you, how do you counter that and, and tell the story of uh, legitimate enforcement issues uh, of the, the kind that the, the president says would the, the IRS would be able to do? Well, again, this is not a question of raising anybody's taxes. This is a question of trying to make sure that everybody pays uh, their fair share, the amount that they're owed. Uh, and there's nothing more corrosive to uh, tax compliance and the implementation execution of the tax code than to have people simply either not filing or filing erroneously, knowingly. Uh, so this is another way to look at it is to the extent you underfund the IRS saying, well, we don't want big government uh, and you don't allow it to effectively enforce the existing tax code. Uh, as I used to say, what you're providing is a tax cut for tax cheats. And I, it's hard for me to imagine uh, anybody's going to say, no, we don't want the IRS to be effective. We want people to be able to um, underpay their taxes or don't pay taxes at all. It just seems to me. Uh, that's not a tenable position, even though sometimes that seems to be the position people are taking. The, we have about a minute left, John. As you know the old saying in this town, the president proposes, Congress disposes. The president's proposed $80 billion over 10 years for the IRS. What if Congress disposes less but still some? How would uh, the IRS triage where to put that money based on the outline that you uh, talked about a moment ago? 
Well, again, I think what the IRS would do, first of all, it's important for people to understand <clears throat> the IRS cares a lot about helping people pay their taxes. So uh, the fact that you can't get through very easily on the phone uh, really is debilitating to the enforcement of the tax code. So I think you would try to make sure you hired enough people so that everybody who wanted to could get through on the phone. And then there is low hanging fruit. There are audits out there that when I was there, we knew needed to be done. You didn't have to go hunt for them. We just didn't have the uh, resources. So my sense is um, even if you only got two or $3 billion a year, it would be a, uh, a great step forward for taxpayer service, uh, fixing the information technology and improving uh, the execution of the tax code, making sure that people pay the amount that they owe. John Koskinen, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me. You can find a link to that op-ed at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, management movement at the top of the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the department may miss when it has to move jobs and people. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Business operation transformation at the Pentagon is on the latest high-risk list from the Government Accountability Office again. GAO says DOD can do more to track its reform efforts. Elizabeth Fields, Director for Defense Capabilities and Management Issues, GAO, she testified about the management movement at the Pentagon to the Senate Armed Services Committee recently. Elizabeth, welcome back. It's good to have you back on the program. What was the main message you wanted to convey to the SASC, Elizabeth? Well, I, I think the message is, is similar to the reason that the committee wanted to have the hearing in the first place, which is that business as usual at the Department of Defense is simply not acceptable uh, anymore, given all of the challenges that it faces as a department, but also that we face as a nation. So just to recap a few key facts here, uh, the defense bu budget is the largest uh, single category of discretionary spending. For the federal government, it is the only major federal agency that has been unable to pass a full financial audit. Every year, it reports billions of dollars in improper payments. Every year, it cancels hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in funds that it couldn't spend. Uh, and it continues to be plagued by a stovepiped bureaucracy and a lack of uh, reliable data to make informed decisions, and so something needs to change. A couple of the things that you testified about jumped out at me, Elizabeth. These are things we've talked about before, in fact, that you and I specifically have spoken about before on this program, but that don't seem to be changing much. And uh, this is from your testimony. Having reliable data to identify baseline costs of the department's business and management functions is, has been a key challenge facing DOD but the department, but one the department's trying to address. Do we have a sense of how much success they're having addressing the access uh, to data? Well, when we looked at this issue last year when the chief management officer was still in place, the department had made progress, as you noted. So there were some cost baselines that the department had developed for some key business functions, which is important because if you want to measure, if you've made progress getting to where you're trying to get, you need to start know where you're starting from. Um, the, the issue, though, now is that with the elimination of the chief management officer position, we are not sure what has happened with that effort to develop those cost baselines. Officials tell us that they want to continue with that initiative, but right now there is a lot up in the air and in flux at the department. And a lot of that flux, to be fair, comes from Congress itself. It wasn't Pentagon's idea to eliminate the CMO office. It was Congress's idea, what, three 
three or four years after establishing the office in the first place and codifying it in legislation, they got rid of it. How much of that churn that's forced on the Pentagon by Congress is part of the problem? Is there a way to quantify that, Elizabeth? Well, there are certain uh, indicators that we look to to get a sense of, of how the department is progressing in its approach to business transformation. As you know, it's one of our high-risk areas, and we look at things like uh, leadership commitment, uh, capacity, demonstrated progress, efforts to monitor progress. Uh, and, and you're right, this was a, a change that was mandated by statute. Uh, the department has chosen to implement it by uh, dividing up the responsibilities that had gone to the chief management officer to two different officials, the comptroller and then the head of cost assessment and program evaluation. The department also chose to dissolve the reform management group and create a new group called the program resource management group. I think that change from reform to resource management is potentially telling and interesting. Um, but we will be looking for those key things. Where is the leadership? Can they sustain the progress they made? Uh, can they continue to report cost savings that are aligned with reform? So on and so forth. Um, another item that you testified about was this. DOD still needs clear roles, responsibilities, authorities, and dedicated resources. It sounds like that's what you're referring to in that comment a moment ago. Just the fact that they need to decide how are we going to move forward and then start moving forward. Am I reading that correctly? That's right. They need to make that decision, uh, but also they need to make sure that those individuals who are tasked with driving reform at the department are fully empowered uh, to make difficult uh, choices and to make changes that are truly transformative. And right now, uh, the department looks like it will be using the Deputies Management Action Group, the DMAG, uh, to address any issues that Comptroller and CAPE can't necessarily uh, work out on their own. Uh, that sounds an awful lot like the model that was used a number of years ago where the Deputy Secretary was dual-hatted as the Chief Management Officer. That model didn't work so well. So we'll be watching closely to see how this plays out. That's the model that made Congress decide to establish the CMO office in the first place. Um, you also testified about this, Elizabeth. DOD's reported achievements from some of its efforts, such as $37 billion in savings from fiscal 2017 to 2021. Um, but you, you write that the documentation is lacking in many cases. What's missing documentation-wise, and what would change that? What would make you think, okay, they're getting the documentation now that we need to see? That's right. So uh, on the positive side, we did see those savings reflected in budget documents, which was progress over prior years. However, what was missing were things like uh, clear uh, explanations, uh, detailed explanations of what the reform initiatives actually were and were designed to achieve, how they were designed, uh, but also some of the economic assumptions that underlie those re reform initiatives and some of the things like upfront costs or implementation costs that might have been entailed in those reform efforts. We couldn't see that. And so we need to see more detailed information about the reform initiatives and to really know that they are, in fact, about reforming business as opposed to, for example, delaying a contract whose costs will ultimately be realized. Elizabeth Field, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. You can find a link to Elizabeth's testimony and the hearing at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, the budget pressure builds on financial managers. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the secret weapon for CFOs. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. The budget pressure agencies will feel soon will come from the Biden administration's new budget request and the, and the cash agencies will have to spend from the stimulus bills. Agency CFOs have a secret weapon, though, to keep their organizations fresh during the crush. Mallory Bark-Bowman is Research Director of Finance Process Excellence at Gartner. She's a former senior analyst at the Government Accountability Office. Mallory, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The secret weapon I'm referring to is finding people in the private sector that want to join the government. What is the evidence that there is a cohort of people out there that are looking to move from the private sector to financial management jobs in the federal government? Thanks for having me, Francis. The conventional wisdom sometimes is that people will stay in sector. But as you and I both know, government is really an employer of choice for many people. You know, went ahead and we looked at data from our global labor market survey where we really look at what drives people, what motivates people, where do they want to work. And we found as many as 6% of current private sector workers would prefer to work in the And that preference, the, the people who have that preference want different things, they value different things than the typical employee does, don't they? That's exactly right. So um, through the data, we were actually able to look at what the motivating factors were. And we found for everybody, the number one driver is competition. For most other employees, it comes down to work-life balance and location. However, for those 6% of employees who want to move from the private sector to the public sector, the two concrete things they were looking for were benefits, both health benefits as well as retirement benefits. So those are very specific things you can target when looking at these employees and trying to explain to them how they'll feel better in the public sector over the private sector. One of the differences that I've noticed in the CFO cohort over the last probably two or three years in particular has been that a number of the agency level CFOs are coming from the private sector directly into those jobs. Does that mean that agency secretaries and deputy secretaries ought to be thinking about the private sector to try to recruit CFOs too and not just further down the chain? That's exactly right. As you and I both know, government is looking for finance talent all the way up to the CFO. And those skills are really hard to find. You want to cast as wide a net as possible. You want to really take advantage of the opportunities to, to find the, the best and brightest that are out there. And, you know, government can compete. It's got a huge mission, exciting work, and frankly, terrific benefits. And so these are are aspects that they can use to lure lure folks away. And, and similarly, we also know that just posting on USA Jobs is not enough. You know, agencies need to post their jobs on, on USA Jobs to comply with fair and open public notice. But you also can take advantage of the same tools the private sector uses. You know, all those social media sites are very helpful in terms of getting the word out there. And is, you know, it's fair game for the, for federal agencies to use those as well. You anticipated where I wanted to go next, which is how do you identify that talent? And because when you say 6% um, would rather work in the government than work in the private sector, that means 94% at least were neutral about it. And, and that strikes me as a difficult cohort to identify. How does one go about identifying that cohort? That sounds like a job not just for the financial management professional, but also for the human capital professional in particular agencies. 
That's exactly right. Um, you want to make sure you cast as wide of a net. It's a way to get the most diverse, skilled talent that we can find. And, you know, just going through the networks of people that already exist in the federal government, you're going to get too small of a pool. So really leveraging, you know, social media, networks, universities, all of these different tools that are out there is really important for federal government as well. And what our data shows is federal jobs, particularly and specifically federal financial management jobs, are as exciting as any, and they can really compete with the private sector for talent. Are there special hiring authorities that we know of that agencies can use for financial management professionals, or maybe should there be, given the need for these folks uh, compared to some of the other specialties across government that do have hiring authorities? Sure, that's really a policy question for OPM and, and something to contend with. As you know, we look at all of the critical skill gaps in government, GAO issues its high risk less frequently, and in that list are always some of the critical skill gaps that the government has. You know, OPM will have to contend with how do we properly incentivize people to, to fill these hard to fill jobs in government. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to go back to the difference between the 6% and the other employees that you identified. You, uh, you told me all, for all U.S. employees, top three drivers for uh, job selection are compensation, number one, work-life balance, number two, number three is location. For that 6% that want to come into government, compensation's number one, but number two is health benefits and three is retirement benefits. That, that gives government a clear advantage among those 6%, doesn't it? That's exactly right. And it gives you sort of an insight there of when you're starting to talk to those applicants, here are the benefits that matter. Here are the things you can really spotlight as you're trying to make that proposal of why it's beneficial to them to work in the government. It's not just about the mission. There's, there's some really concrete benefits as well. Mallory, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract 
to modernize the network to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital centric services and the government needs the the network to uh, to step up to those uh, expectations this is a long-term contract how is it built so that when hughes rolls out something cool say five years from now that the agencies will be able to access that. The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.